Hello, everybody. Today we are talking about how artists have portrayed war in art history and in contemporary art. If you would like to grow as an artist and you can't take an art class, we've got everything you need to art prof, critiques, tutorials, professional development, and workshops. I want to give everybody a trigger warning because of the subject matter that we are going to be discussing today. And this is such a gigantic topic. It's almost intimidating to talk about it in terms of all of history and what's happening today. And we're gonna show you guys a very wide range of different formats. You're gonna see murals, children's books, sculpture, installation, murals, ancient coins, photography, painting, drawing, memorials. Because what really struck me about all of these pieces is that it's the most grandiose scale you can think about. And what I found fascinating looking at these images that I assembled for the slideshow is you have some pieces that are telling one little piece of a story that feels very personal and very intimate. And then you have pieces that are epic, that have hundreds of figures that are painted into a single image. And I just find that fascinating, that I don't know that there are a lot of topics that inspires such a range. Memorials are clearly meant there to contemor uh, to portray these huge events. And I think in some ways it's hard to process artwork that we see like that. Tell me in the chat, have you seen maybe a photograph recently or a painting or an artwork or one you've seen before? that had to do with some war that stayed with you. Because one of the things that strikes me about the images from art history is that this is a woodcut by Kathy Kollwitz made in 1923. And yet I don't know anybody today who could look at this woodcut and not feel that emotion. And in a lot of ways, the pieces that we're gonna be looking at that many of them are timeless. I mean, sure, <laughs> the Bayou Tapestry, they've, they've got medieval outfits on, so it's not like anybody's mistaking this for 2024. But looking at the images I assembled, I started seeing patterns, certain gestures that get repeated the ages. And so even though, let's say, we're looking at the Bayou Tapestry, and guys, this is huge. I, I wish I could go see this. It's in Normandy, France. And I think I read that it's something like 70 meters and it's a tapestry. I mean, I can't imagine the crew they must have had to make thing like this. And one thing I noticed also, it was actually animals because I was looking at these Native American ledger pieces, I'll give them to you in a minute. And they have a lot of horses. And in fact, a lot of the war images, I have some from India that also have horses. And so that's what I found 
really fascinating was trying to figure out, okay, well, how are these wars specific? Because every war has its own number of details. But then what are some of the themes that begin to emerge across all of these different pieces that we can pull together as a more universal experience? This is the what's referred to as the terracotta army. And this is a mausoleum of an emperor in China. And I believe they're supposed to accompany him in the afterlife. That's a lot of sculptures. They're gigantic. I mean, this, this is just blows my mind. If you guys look at these little people in the background, okay, that's how big this mausoleum is. And I remember I saw a photo of this when I was a young child. It was in this book that I was sort of obsessed with. It was this coffee table book. It was really, really thick. And it was all about China. It had these beautiful photos in it. And it had one of these images. And I remember it, it, it scared me so much. Like to this day, I can't really look at these army figures without having a, a little chill go up my spine. And they, they have such an emotional reaction for me, even though I wasn't living during that time period. So that's what I think is amazing is that art can provide this opportunity to have this almost emotional, visceral reaction to something, to a period in time or an event that you have no direct relationship with. And that's where I think it's extremely powerful. Yeah, so we have Carolyn who saw Guernica. I did see Guernica. It's at the, I can't pronounce the name of the museum, Thyssen. I can't say the second word. It's like Bornezea. I'm sorry. <laughs> Somebody can correct me on the pronunciation of that museum. And I was surprised. Guernica is huge. I knew it was going to be big, but I had no idea it was going to be that big. Oh, George got to see the Bayou Tapestry. Oh, I need to get over there. Amanda says Civil War photographs that were composed where they moved the bodies to make the photograph more photogenic. Oh, dear. And haunting. Sia Kentrell says, I was a child. I saw a painting of an injured soldier during the Vietnam War that really disturbed me. It was at an art fair. These images that we see when we're kids, they stay with you. You may not understand in the moment what that piece was, but these images are incredibly powerful. 7A says, when I was 12, I wrote a book on the Holocaust. There was a photo of the piles of hair taken from the victims. That always stuck with me. Well, actually, my spouse went to Auschwitz a couple years ago, and he told me that when you visit there, there are parts of the site that you're not allowed to take photos of, and that was one of the things that was on display. Zucchini says, I don't know how to pronounce this, Majdanek concentration camp in Poland is now a state park museum with large brutalist sculptures. This is great. Everybody keep putting those suggestions in there because I think what's really helpful is for us to share our own experiences. 
it's one thing for me to read about the Bayou Tapestry, but for one of you guys to come in here and say, well, hey, this is what I noticed. I would love for people to share more of that. These are the ledger pieces that I referred to before. And these were created by Native Americans in the Great Plains. And they are literally drawn on ledgers. So these were ledgers that the colonists basically were using to keep track of their inventory. And the Native Americans, they had all these oral histories and the ledgers actually became this pictorial representation of those oral histories. And it's really fascinating because you see the images, but then you see how actually the lines of the ledger become part of that composition. For example, here we see how the horizontal lines, they really fit the direction of the battle. And then having the handwritten notes at the bottom, I find these so intimate. I mean, they almost feel like war diaries in a way. And that's another form of telling a story because really essentially, that's what these images are doing. They're telling a story, but it's a story that impacts people on a very grand and a very small scale at the same time. I also think inherently, when you make artwork, you cannot not have it be a reaction to your time period. Every piece of artwork that has been made throughout history just being made in that time period. You can't help but those things influencing you. And, and sometimes it's materials. Sometimes it's the format. Like this is one from the Qing dynasty. And you can see this is a format, an indicator of those paintings that have those seals. Oftentimes there's a lot of writing on the side. This is a photograph and photography wasn't around when they made the Bayou tapestry. And I find that really powerful that everything we make as an artist, whether we intend for it to be or not, is a reaction to what's happening in our world. And people live such different lives. And sometimes the way the artwork is made dictates how an artist works. Other times they're defying what's happening in their time period. And I thought it was interesting that while we have some pieces in the slideshow that are very haunting, some are tough to look at, there's also ones like this. I, I feel like this is such a festive <laughs> scene. I, I feel like there's something about the waves, almost like these flourishes and the bombs, I suppose. They're so decorative almost. And so it's funny to me that while you can have pieces like this, this is one that was made in response to the war in Afghanistan. This one has such a haunting, desolate feel to it that you can have images that look pretty playful. So here's one of a battle in India. And honestly, if you just looked at this piece very quickly and you didn't take the time to look at everything, a lot of us would not think this is a battle. 
it's a little pretty <laughs> to be a battle. But then when you get down in there, you notice, wow, there are all these people and they have a lot of swords. And yet the color scheme is not really what we think about when it comes to a really harrowing situation in a war. This one is contemporary. This is an artist. You can see uh, this artist did a comic for the Washington Post that was published recently. And this is somebody who is a Palestinian living in Gaza. And we're seeing art being made right now. I mean, we always are, but I think when it comes to journalism and the way news is spread throughout the world, sometimes there can be more visibility for something. For example, being published in the Washington Post, obviously that's more visibility, but we have seen pieces that have gotten a lot of visibility without being published in such a big place like that. Let's take a look at what else people are saying in the chat. Real Deal says, Life Magazine photos of the Vietnam War are seared into my brain. Life Magazine was such a critical publication for photography. I mean, does everybody remember? It was a huge magazine. I mean, it was like this big. And yet I'm the same way. Like I remember the photos that were in that magazine. And it's so different now because there's no publication that is so sort of large in scale that it has such an impact. I think oftentimes we're looking at everything on a phone. Everything just feels minimized. But there's something about opening that big magazine and seeing the photos so large. 3rd of May by Goya. We're going to get to that in a minute. That is at the Prado and ugh, Goya. <laughs> What's not to love? He's just so good of all of these things. And 7A says the Narmar palette from Egypt is another war art that I can remember from my childhood, but I was much more memorized, mesmerized by that. Amber says, in my small town thrift store, I found a small picture scratchbook, scrapbook and realized it was from Nazi Germany showing a school. There's German writing on the back with dates, but I don't read German. Thrift stores, you can find all kinds of things that, number one, you weren't even looking for. But number two, it, it's startling when you find things like that. John says... I was an adult, but I once went to an art museum in Chicago. They had an exhibit that had a warning message before entering. One of the pieces was purposefully hard to make out. A lot of these images are not easy to look at. It depends. I mean, for YouTube reasons, I couldn't show some of the more difficult images because I don't want <laughs> the stream to be taken down. But I think that the point we're trying to make here is that is such a immersive experience to live in a time when there's a war and we have a lot happening today. And for some people, it's their lives. That's it. I mean, my mom, she was in Taiwan when it was occupied by Japan. And she said she remembers going to the bomb shelter. They'd have these air raids and they had to get up and go. And when it becomes a part of a person's life, that's when sometimes it feels more real. And so I think when artists show their point of view and explain 
okay, this is my voice. This is my story and the context of all of these wars. Sometimes that's easier to connect with for people. Like this is Persepolis and this artist wrote this comic. It's also a movie animated film about daily life in Iran during and after the Islamic revolution. So that is actually a very powerful way to tell a story because while you can tell the story as a piece like this, which feels so grand and there's hundreds of figures and you feel the landscape that's happening, sometimes the emotional connection is a little bit harder. And when you see one person's story and you hear about that from their point of view, that's another form of storytelling. And Jen is following up. I got really close to it to inspect it. And then I suddenly realized it was a picture from the Vietnam War and it was very disturbing. There's been a lot of conversations in terms of photojournalism, what is appropriate for people to see? Because certainly newspapers are getting all kinds of photographs in every context. And there's arguments for showing the more difficult photos so people have a deeper realization of what's happening. There's arguments people say, well, actually that desensitizes people. And it, it's interesting to think about, okay, what are those photographs that stay with us and what it is? Part of it today, I think, is just images travel so fast that they take on a life of their own. It's, it's almost out of the hands of the photographer. Iron Earth says the Holocaust mass graves, a picture from the Vietnam War of a little girl running naked. I think she had been hit with the palm, a woman's face dissolving in grief, Hiroshima bombing. Yeah, look that up. That's a really famous photograph from Vietnam War. Thank you so much, Jennifer. For the super sticker, we so much appreciate your support. Sorry, I know it feels a little inappropriate <laughs> to have that silly little animation and we're here talking about war. Who here has seen the Vietnam Veterans Memorial? The one that was designed by Maya Lin and it's in Washington, D.C. And I actually got to see it a couple of years ago. And the thing is, this is a piece I had seen it so many times in art history books and photographs of it. And I was startled when I saw, I mean, you sort of always are when you see such a big memorial. And I'd seen tons of photos like this where you would see the names and everything. But th this is the view that they don't show this view that much. They show more those reflections. And I, I was stunned by the way it had this almost surge where you start at the ends and the granite wall is very low, and then it surges towards the center. I was not prepared for that motion. I mean, you wouldn't think granite <laughs> could really show motion, but I really was startled by that. And I see it so differently now as a piece. The names are obviously a huge part of this memorial, but I think as a design, it, it's very powerful. And I don't know if people know, but there was a huge 
controversy over this. People were furious that Maya Lin made the piece. A lot of people very angry that she was an Asian artist creating this. And she was very young. I think she was a student at Yale. She was like 19 or something. I mean, I don't wish that situation upon anybody. Here's another little fragment of a war. I, I have a thing about ancient coins. They're just really wonky looking. I guess part of me just loves the whole casting process. And I love the idea that every coin in ancient Rome was unique. Now they all look exactly the same. But you can see even on a coin, you've got a battle that's happening on such a tiny scale. And so I guess the topic of war really makes me conscious of scale because you do have these tiny moments. And I love this piece, this Indian sculpture. They, they, they look, definitely are up to no good, but it's like their anatomy is so odd. And I wouldn't say these are humorous at all, but there's just so much exaggeration that it's not the same thing as some of these I guess more gory paintings where you know, Goya, you can see the out and stuff like that. So it is interesting that there is such a range. I mean, you wouldn't think there would be. Oh God, I couldn't watch Grave of the Fireflies. I had a really hard time with that movie and that doesn't happen to me that often. I think because I have kids, it was just really hard for me to watch. And Amanda says, my aunt's office in the Pentagon got destroyed on 9-11. She was out of the office that day. I don't know if that is a day of tragedy or war topic. Well, that's a really good point to bring up, Amanda, that people have very di different interpretations of war. I mean, there's war that is named. For example, we say the Civil War. That war has a name to it. But you can also hear people talk about, I mean, a phrase that's been used in the past is the war on drugs, okay? And that's not the same thing as a battle that happened, but war is not that straightforward sometimes. And it can be interpreted in a lot of different ways. I was fascinated by this piece. It has the sculptural segment on the left-hand side, but then it actually turns into these names towards the end. And I think what's really hard about murals, first of all, I do not wish making a public memorial on any artist. I mean, I, I don't know how artists are able to do that because you're dealing with such delicate subject matter. And in some cases, there are people who are survivors who went through that and now they're seeing this memorial and I think that is just about the biggest challenge you could ever be given as an artist. You, you have to just, ugh, I mean, I don't think I would ever want to do that. I just feel like it would be so difficult to deal with that. The other interesting thing is propaganda. So this is Rosie the Riveter. And you can see that this is a very bright poster. Like this is not like any of the other images. And this was to inspire, I think, Correct me if I'm wrong, but she was this, part, she's not real. They made her up, Rosie the Riveter, but she's meant to inspire women to 
uh, go and help with the war. Tiff says, when I went to the local art museum a couple years after 9-11, they had a sculpture of an armor suit all made out of dog tags of injured and fallen soldiers. That hit the heart. I wonder if that was Doho Sa, because he does have a P yeah, it's definitely Doho Sa, yeah, because it's it's a big sheet of armor, but it like spreads onto the ground. So it sort of takes up the whole space. And that's by Doho Sa, and it is made entirely out of dog tags. I really like his work. I think his work is very compelling. Lisa says, I play pool with someone who was at Pearl Harbor. He was seven and remembers going to the hospital basement during the bombing. Somebody who I played with in an orchestra once, I mean, he flew planes in World War II. And I'm not somebody who ever grew up in a context of needing to go to a bomb shelter or anything like that. And it's just so big. Like I, I feel sort of ignorant that I can't process a lot of those things. Well, so this is interesting. We have different takes on the Vietnam Memorial. Of course, everybody has such a different interpretation. C. Cantrell thinks it's brilliant. Real Deal says great. Jen Noel saw it on a sixth grade trip. And, and you're right that sometimes it depends on the age. I mean, if I had seen 3rd of May when I was 10, I don't think I would have cared that much. I mean, maybe. Maybe if I had a really good art teacher who pointed that out to me. Joe says they've seen it. It's so powerful. George says I visited a number of times, almost, always moved almost to tears. A few names of people I know there. That experience of visiting a piece of art that is meant to memorialize those people. I mean, I've never made artwork like that. And I respect so much artists who can work with such delicate topics. This is an artist. Actually, his real name is above, but I guess he goes by no hope. And look at these just stunning photographs of this trail of scars. And people just don't feel this way <laughs> about still lives. I mean, it, it's such a deeply human experience to see artwork like this, that you're just not going to see in every other place. Jazz says, are these just American names in the memorial for Vietnam? I'm actually not sure. So maybe somebody can look that up and let me know. Wiley says, I feel in today's world, we could think of war as a really broad act, not only the pursuits of government militaries, but also wars on the environment, on education in America, and on faith and science. Yes, I, I think it's a word that we can interpret literally, like you can say, okay, it's, it's a battle. But it, it's bigger than that. I, I think it can be seen in very different ways. Yeah, Real Deal says finding your person on the wall is very emotional, more than you think it will be. Yeah. Well, I like what Karasu here is bringing up. Karasu says there's a sci-fi horror series I read as a kid 
that was an allegory for war. I know there are graphic novel adaptations, but I can't find them. Well, I think sometimes sci-fi is a way to talk about those big themes, but without getting super specific about what you're talking about. Although I, I think one of the things that happens inevitably is people will look at a sci-fi show and they'll say, oh, that character or group of people, they're, they're actually supposed to be these people in real life. I suppose that's sort of unavoidable, but sometimes when you take these themes of war and you take them out of the factual part of history, sometimes it is a different way to think about war because you, you don't have all those attachments to all those other things. 7A says, I have found it interesting when art has been used to talk about topics of war and violence that are not allowed by an authority and use metaphor to try to depict real issues. Yeah, it's interesting how if I go back through a whole bunch of the images, how some of what we look at, like in this piece here, it's a symbol. Okay, so we don't see actual human faces like we do here. I mean, these are very highly distorted and exaggerated, but symbolism is oftentimes a way of communicating that artists use to talk about war. For example, there are countries with specific symbols that are strongly associated with them. And so that's oftentimes a way to talk about that. Whereas, well, like here, here's a symbol. <laughs> we have Liberty Leading the People by Delacroix. And Liberty is this personification, okay? There's no real woman that actually looks like that. Liberty is not a real person. She's this symbol who is walking over the war. So that's an interesting point that sometimes you can have an image and you say to yourself, oh, okay, that, that's not a real person. That's a symbol. That's something representing something. Whereas this one by Michal Wark, this could be more like, okay, that's an individual soldier. This soldier is not meant to represent a giant group of people. And we also have, that's it, Tom Cuke. Rosie the Riveter was to encourage women to work in factories as all the men were gone to war. And Carolyn says, I grew up during the Cold War, which had some of the fear of an active war, but kind of in the background of daily life. Every war is so different in terms of the geography is oftentimes has to be a big part of that. So C. Cantrell says, interesting, reminds me of Godzilla destroying Tokyo, which is, I, I think it's, it's hard to think that all of those anime pieces and Godzilla movies with giant mushroom clouds, I mean, it, it's, I mean, that whole event traumatized this generation and it, it's not really an image you can walk away from because it was just such a part of that experience. Jazz says the time period around World War I and II in Germany, the art known as new objectivity depicts people as ugly 
like the artists were coming to terms with the atrocities and brutality they had seen. And it's interesting how we all experience that in such different ways. I mean, for a lot of people, they're absorbing some of these photographs that are coming out from the media. I mean, most of us are looking at that on our phone. And that is a very different thing than when you go to the memorial, you go to the museum, and you see the actual object. I mean, I think we talk a lot about how seeing artwork in real life, it, it's never going to compare <laughs> to um, seeing the digital photo. It's never going to compare. But I think when you have artworks that are physically larger than a person, something about that is a very different interaction. And I think one of the times that I really started to think about that was when I was doing my MFA, we were doing a lot of figurative sculpture. And I think I had a professor who mentioned this. He said that this idea of a life-size human sculpture, we interact with that very differently than if there is a sculpture and the person is 20 feet tall. But also if you have a sculpture that's very tiny, like a little figure, we see that very differently. And so I think when you're dealing with huge murals like this one here or something that is more of an installation, your physical presence in relation to the scale of the artwork has such a high impact. And that's where I, I just wish it was possible to bring more people to all these places because it just feels like everything's such a fast pace. And the thing is, when you go to a place like, let's say, Korean War Veterans Memorial, and you're in that space, you have to slow down and absorb it. I mean, on phone, I can just swipe. It's not a big deal. But when you're there, I don't know anybody who would go to the Vietnam Veterans Memorial and just walk by. You can't. It, it has this gravitas that we encounter and have to process. Karasu says, graphic novels and animation are some of the greatest tools for storytelling. Barefoot Jen is an example of a powerful story about Hiroshima. Oh, I think there's been many just compelling graphic novels about certain time periods. I mean, Persepolis is definitely one that I mentioned earlier. Amanda. Yeah, I, I hope people know that photo. It's the photo of the sailor and he's kissing this woman. I don't can't remember what she's wearing, but anyway, it, it's the most joyous war photo and it's extremely famous. Probably a lot of you guys know. 7A says literal scale to enforce emotional scale. Yeah, and, and that's another thing about these pieces is that even within one painting, some of the scale is dramatic. I mean, here we have a larger group of people in the foreground, but we have just this huge crowd in the background. And I just don't know that there are that many artworks out there that sometimes encompass that sheer scale. Like I find this one from the Qing Dynasty I, I, that's got to be like thousands of people. I mean, like, I wish I could like go in and just like count them all, but it's, there are not that many artworks 
that have that many figures in such an epic space that are not about war. I suppose it's probably one out there with some festive parade, but usually when you're seeing this degree of quantity, it has to do with something epic on that scale. Oh, I should have included Mouse. Thank you very much, Karasu. That is an amazing graphic novel. It, I, I cannot believe it got published actually because it is not at the time it was published. It, it's not what people thought of as being a comic or graphic novel. And I think I might be wrong. Maybe somebody can look it up. I think that Mouse was the first graphic novel to win a Pulitzer, I think. But that is an amazing book. And I, I couldn't put it down. It was just so compelling. Yeah, Lisa agrees. Sculpture size matters. I've seen Rodin small practice bronze figures in the same final eight foot bronze. They have a different impact, especially it has a lot to do with eye level too. For example, there are many ancient Rome generals. I mean, there's a million of them <laughs> all over Rome. And, you know, he's always like on a giant horse and stuff like that. And there's a reason why the pedestal is taller than you. Because when you have a larger than life size figure who is far above you and you have to look up to see it, I mean, that's basically putting that general or whoever up so high that they dominate you, literally, in terms of scale. And so that's something I always think about when it comes to figurative sculpture. Okay, so I was correct. All right, yes. First and only graphic novel to win a Pulitzer. Hi, Jamie. I'm so excited you can join us here. We have a fairly heavy stream today, but I think you guys know that we don't shy away from those topics because as much as art is fun and silly sometimes and engaging, it's also just a part of the human race. It just is. And that's what I find really, really compelling. We do have spaces in our clothing and drapery workshop. This is on Saturday, February 24th. And I'm so excited about this topic. We've never offered it before. And people ask me all the time, how to do drapery for any other reason in clothing, because you know it's fun to draw the figure new, but at a certain point, you gotta put clothes on them. So this is a workshop that will be showing that. We also have a charcoal workshop. This is coming up Saturday, February 3rd. And you guys know I love charcoal. <laughs> so this one's sort of a no brainer for me. So I hope I can help you guys tap into that. We will be having a chat in the Discord immediately after the stream. You want to meet us in the post live streams channel so we can chat about more things. Join our Open Studios Club. This is a brand new program. And this is where we work in a virtual art studio together. It's like my late nights in art school and you get to make art friends and you get to see what people are making in real time. So I think this is gonna be a really fun virtual workspace. You can get feedback from me in real time. That's really different than when you make something post it, when you're right there with the pen in your hand, I can jump in and give you help with this. So I'm very excited about this program. Link is in the YouTube video description below. 
Thank you so much to our top Patreon supporters. Some of you guys are so, well, not some of you, all of you, I'm sorry. <laughs> You're all incredible. Your loyalty, desire to help all the artists because when you guys support us, you're supporting all the other artists in the globe. You're helping people who normally would never have access to the type of education. So, I mean, certainly we are the ones who are on the receiving end of these things, but when you support us, you're helping all those other artists. Visit artprof.org for content that's not on YouTube. Use the search bar. Artprof has a podcast. It's available on Spotify and also on iTunes. And Gumby would like you to subscribe for more art tutorials, critiques, and business tips. He He's a troublemaker. I can tell. He, he's sort of spazzy. Pom Pom is the shy one. But Gumby's still very small right now. He can't really make a lot of trouble. But I, I think when he gets bigger, <laughs> he definitely will be. Everybody, thank you so much for watching. I'll see you next time. Bye.